Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's me, Catherine. And Elise. It's been a long time coming. We're talking about The Princess Diaries 2, The Royal Engagement. Our favorite movie? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Top five? I wouldn't. Definitely top five. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a comfort movie. If I want to have a good time, I would likely watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It was a good time watching it. I looked forward to it. It's like, yes, yeah. I get to watch The Princess Diaries too. I was filled with warm, fuzzy feelings. I enjoyed the music. I felt empowered. To break away. To break away. <laughs> to break away. I guess before we get into it, because we got a lot to say. We got yes. a lot to say this time. <laughs> so we'll keep this intro short and sweet. But let me give you a quick synopsis because, I mean, if you haven't watched The Princess Diaries 2, please watch it immediately. Just, it's the right choice for all of us right now. <laughs> but in case, like, you just need a quick refresher, let me tell you. So Princess Diaries 2 opens. Mia has just graduated from college from Princeton. And she is going to Genovia to prepare to become queen. And... Lo and behold, she finds out that technically she's supposed to be married to become queen. And this man brings it up and he says, uh, one of the parliament members, one, one of the par- parliamentarians, he says, we need to enforce this because my nephew is also eligible to, eligible to become king and I want him to become king. So I'm going to make sure that Mia has to get married and he doesn't think that she will basically. And so Parliament agrees, okay, yeah, she has to get married. And I don't really know how they whittle this down, but at first they're like, yeah, we'll give her a year to do this. And then all of a sudden it's 30 days. And so they decree that Mia has 30 days to get married before she can be be coronated or else. I mean, they never outline the or else, but I guess the implied or else is that she can't be queen. So Mia has a realization while talking to her grandmother that this basically means that she has to have an arranged marriage. Because obviously, even the best that dating apps has to offer will not, probably not, produce love in 30 days. So Lily is flown in and they go through the equivalent of a dating app, basically, for royals. And they decide on Andrew, Duke of Kenilworth. Oh, in the meantime, Mia had a birthday party and Raven Simone was there and their friends and she meets this guy called Nicholas played by Chris Pine who kind of romances her and um, has an interaction with his uncle who we recognize as the guy in parliament who said my nephew has this but we didn't know that they were connected anyway then Clarice invites Nicholas and his uncle to the palace to keep all the goings on under her nose Basically, the uncle has advised Nicholas to romance Mia to convince her to not go through with an arranged marriage. So he tries to do that. Meanwhile, Andrew is supportive and they decide to get married um, after meeting a few times. And then as time goes on, it's clear that Mia is starting to develop feelings for Nicholas. And at the same time, Nicholas goes to his uncle and says like, no, I actually think she'd be a great queen. I don't want to steal that from her. And his uncle says, oh, you're in love with her. And there's some like other development of their relationship. Mia showcases the skills that she's learned and that she truly is ready to become queen. There's a development of Clarice and Joe's relationship that he makes it clear that he wants to marry her when she steps down and she's resistant to it. But of course, in the end, she ends up marrying him. So I guess the emotional climax of the film. So a couple nights before the wedding, Mia goes with Nicholas for like a moonlight moonlit stroll and then they get spotted by paparazzi and she blames Nicholas for it. She's going to go ahead with her wedding and Joe says, "Hey, just so you know, it wasn't it wasn't Nicholas who did that. It was his uncle. He's a little snaky boy." So then Mia goes to Andrew and she says, "Hey, listen, let's not do this." He says, "You're right. Cool." she makes a motion to have the rule abolished that she doesn't have to get married before she becomes queen and then so they don't waste a wedding um Clarice gets married to Joe and then leading up to her coronation Nicholas comes to her and says love you do you love me too and she kisses him and her foot pops which is an allusion to the last movie and they live happily ever after very nice but that was such a circuitous <laughs> For a movie that I've seen like probably 30 times, 
how did I tell it that poorly? No, I, I, I understand. I think I, I misremembered the order of events. Even after yeah. watching it the first time, I was like doing notes and I was like, hang on. I don't think this is right. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I felt just now. I just, <laughs> woo. It's okay. We got there in the end. We got there in the end and everybody's seen it. Like everybody better have seen it. Exactly. Y'all better. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's, without further ado. Let's do it. Let's get into it. Wow. Here we are. The moment we've all been waiting for the Princess Diaries 2 um, <laughs> podcast. I'm so excited. I feel like my entire life has just been building up to this moment, but I didn't know it, you know. Agree. 100% <laughs> agree. Who could have thought the first time I watched this movie that 20 years down the line, I don't think it's been 20 years. 2004, wasn't this movie? Yes. 15 years, 16 years down the line. 17 years down the line. I'd be making a podcast with a girl I hadn't even met yet about this movie. Not me. Not me either, man. I had this movie on DVD, as Mm -hmm. I had for most of the movies uh, that I watched as a child. I'm pretty sure I saw it before I saw the first movie, because for some reason we just had bought this one, and I guess I was more of the age to just sit down and watch this but it was amazing I watched all of the behind the scenes extras on the dvd which included an in-depth look into the costuming of the movie and all of the dresses from Mia's wardrobe and like the music video for breakaway like it was all on the dvd (laughs) and I watched it so many times it was like one of my favorite movies I think it's so good and I don't remember if I watched this movie or the original first but I did I talked to my friend shout out that he said the same thing that he was like oh I definitely saw the sequel before the first one and yeah I don't remember but this definitely had a way more profound maybe not a greater mark on me but like I just like this movie so much more Um, yeah agree (laughs) yeah we kind of discussed this I think last time and I discussed it with my mom because I invited my mom and my brother watched the first one with me and then I invited them to watch the second one with me and my mom joined and I was like I'm so excited for this I like this one better than the first one and my my brother said like oh why my mom said because Chris Pine is in it and I was like listen (laughs) is Chris Pine in it yes does he look really good despite the terrible hair yes but that's not the crux of why I like this movie better I've been doing a lot of reflecting about it since then, but the surface level answer, I think, is that the first one has all kinds of cringe and secondhand embarrassment, and this one, she's more, like, quirky in a relatable way that's, like, Mm. fun to watch than completely cringe from start to end. (laughs) Yeah. And she's, like, come into her own. She's doing her thing. Yeah. Definitely much less of the weird yeah the weird cringe and I think my love for this movie is also really tied to like its aesthetic for some reason I think as a kid I was really it's obvious it's so obviously a movie set like that's the thing you know you can tell it's like very like the props are just kind of like very obviously movie props I don't know how to explain it otherwise but still I just like I was obsessed with her red dress I loved like the way that they dressed her in this movie for some reason, I was just very impacted by it as a child. And I liked the castle, like the scene where she goes exploring and like finds a secret yeah. passageway. That shit was so cool. And I, so yeah, I think like the aesthetic for me, it was brighter. It was kind of more engaging than the first one. I think the first one was just sort of like, I don't know, it just felt duller to me. It's yeah. the only way that I can describe it. But I, I have such vivid memories of this movie. Like half of my notes are just this scene lives rent free in my brain. And I'm like, <laughs> I should stop writing that and just say the whole movie is in my head rent free. Like <laughs> literally. <laughs> I think my first comment on that is that my mom, after the movie, she commented to my dad, like, I, I don't know how many times I've seen that movie. It still kind of makes you tear up at the end when she like makes her stand and gets yeah. coronated and they say the eagle is flying for the last time. Like, it's emotional. It's really emotional. I I teared up while Charlotte was crying during the coronation scene. (laughs) She's like, they're both so beautiful. And I was like, you're right, Charlotte, they are. (laughs) 
yeah and I think this is also like going back to what you said about like the set and all that stuff I think this is another case of things that I've watched that I think would just be really fun to be a part of making and I think this definitely falls in that category like obviously everybody liked each other enough in the first movie to come back for the second one or maybe they had to sign a contract ahead of time that they would do it but Mm -hmm. I don't think so I don't know and they just like did mattress surfing and really like got to try on fun clothes Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing like would have loved to be involved in this that's why I liked the behind the scenes so much too because I I think as a kid had a lot of fun watching people like make the movie and kind of have fun behind the scenes it's like it's so chaotic but in the best way possible (laughs) (laughs) like there are just so many things in it that are just inexplicable and ridiculous like the CGI for the Genovian airport yeah (laughs) Because Genovia is a set in Burbank, California. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, who cares? You know, like I just, it's it's cheesy in all the best ways. And um, and it's just really fun to watch. And I have so much nostalgia tied to it. Like it just, it was kind of like a fun experience. Because I haven't seen this movie in like a while. Like this first time, probably since I owned it on DVD that I've seen it. Oh my so, God. So yeah, I know. <laughs> I still have it on DVD. So nice. the last time I watched it was probably about three months ago. <laughs> so can't relate <laughs> on that front. I just like I think if there's any movie that I'm ever gonna watch that like I know I'll have a nice time and will just make me feel warm and fuzzy inside, it's this movie. Period. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like the music, like Breakaway is an incredible song. Yeah. Okay. I sang that goosebumps. shit to myself. Yeah, goosebumps. Oh, yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> it was the classic song that you like practiced your future American Idol audition yes. to in your room alone in 2006 like yeah nothing so else good <laughs> the love me tender cover while they're oh dancing my god moonlight. it's so good <laughs> yeah so like the music was better than this the first one that was the other thing it was just like more dynamic it wasn't like the same sounding song like you pointed out so uh last episode like there is a little bit more variety we have a Lindsay Lohan song playing in the credits it's awesome I love it so much (laughs) I think the music like the music told the story that the movie told that was much more girl power than Mm -hmm. the first one and Mm -hmm. yeah the songs I still will like rock out to them um yeah when I'm trying to remind myself that I'm a hashtag girl boss um catch me listening to breakaway when I just want to feel something again. <laughs> in my, in my cold heart <laughs> so true oh. when I was analyzing more why I like this movie better I think that I mean all of these things that we've mentioned came up and I think another thing was I was thinking about what you said last time about the lack of agency in Mia's transformation in the first movie mm-hmm. and I think she kind of takes it back in the second movie and in the first movie as we said like she doesn't kind of find a common ground between her princess identity and her old self Mm -hmm. Um, but in this one like you see it when Nicholas and his uncle come to the palace that she says like oh is this a good outfit to walk with them which is like obviously a tiny tiny thing but the fact that normally she walks around the palace in like jeans and a cute poncho that like really inspired many outfits for me um and like boots (laughs) me too (laughs) poncho inspo that's all I gotta say about that but then like she recognizes that she kind of has to dress up for different events in her life but that she Mm -hmm. still has this personal style that doesn't have to be approved by the queen no one else has a say in etc mm-hmm. and yeah she walks around in like her ugg slippers and poncho from time to time i think that you saw both sides of mia that like one side that she was doing a job that she mm-hmm. gets dressed for work a certain way basically and trains in the way that her grandma wants her to but when she's off duty she's off duty and she can be herself and mm. she still like slides on chairs and wears funny pajamas yeah knocks things over is a clumsy quirky gal (laughs) yeah Um, yeah (laughs) and she hasn't lost that I think is significant and it's kind of like a girl power message yeah I think I think this movie like at least 
handles it that balance better i think than and you know it's she's a little bit older and like a little bit more mature and she's been to college and you do see the i wish there were more scenes of this honestly but like the scene of her advocating for the conversion of the vacation home into like a children's center slash home you see her kind of like dealing in this diplomatic way that kind of like obviously supposed to foreshadow what she'll do as queen and I liked seeing her do that like I liked um and I, I wish I had seen more of that perhaps but like you know it was obviously it was nice that it was in there but and it was nice that you still have the kind of balance of Mia being fun loving while also handling the job like you said yeah I also liked how they framed like the love story I feel like the main I don't know maybe this is just my reading of it but I think the main development is like her coming into herself as queen as a queen and like becoming more confident in her ability and yeah like the scene that you see she sticks to her guns and says this is what we're doing this is something that I'm passionate about and I have the power to do that and I think that was the much more significant development um and and yeah how I I really liked how they framed um the relationship with Andrew and obviously the one with Nicholas was kind of fraught at times but mm-hmm. yeah I think the one with Andrew was really kind of heartwarming that yeah it was kind of set up to be an arranged marriage and she had ambitions that it would be something more um mm-hmm. and then he was ready to support her and said yeah I don't feel it either but we're gonna do what we gotta do yeah and that really like touching moment when she like gives him back the ring at the wedding and is like we shouldn't do this we should do do something for ourselves and he was like oh my god thank god yeah Um, thank you thank you for keeping me from doing the proper thing for once in my life something like that (laughs) and again it wasn't I feel like it could have gone such a different way Mm -hmm. that in many cases women like female protagonists are made to make a choice like that because for example like if Andrew said actually I've fallen in love with Lady Alyssa I'm not marrying you like you're Mm -hmm. SOL and then like often they're forced into decisions to like claim their power and like claim kind of as a backup plan and the fact that it was completely of her own accord that she said hey listen this isn't fair to me it isn't fair to him I'm perfectly capable of doing this by myself you all know that Mm -hmm. and there's no reason for me to do this I also will note that <laughs> the thing that fed into our idea that Clarice was like queen for so long was, yeah, Princess Mia says like, my grandmother had ruled without a man at her side for a long time. And I was like, <laughs> hasn't it been like five years? <laughs> it's definitely it. I really feel like that. <laughs> I think seeing the second one first is probably why I was just like, what is this? Like, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. We all got fooled. We really, we got got. But I think you make very excellent points and kind of going back to what you said initially that there is like a lot more, you see Mia in control a lot more of the time than you do in the first one, which like I get is kind of part of the progression of the plots across the two movies. But it was just nice to see in this movie that, yeah, her dynamic with Andrew, I really liked. And he was, he was just fun because he was just kind of there and he like didn't yeah. cause a bunch of trouble and he wasn't a dick about the whole thing. And like that is just nice. Yeah, he could have so easily been like the jealous. He like mm-hmm. knew that something was going on. Like mm-hmm. he and Lady Alyssa made jokes and stuff like that. And he was just a supportive, supportive guy. Yeah. Which we love. Yeah always <laughs> yeah and honestly like the fact that they gave us two well again nicholas opinions change on him over the course of the film yeah throughout the film andrew underrated i just looked at him for a while um in the wake of this recent watching and i was like oh he's a really good looking guy yes he he just he was just there he was having a good time he was very polite and yeah. uh he was ready to support mia i think uh yeah <laughs> it was funny I think as a kid I kind of like wrote him off I was like ah whatever this guy yeah exactly <laughs> but, <laughs> me too <laughs> but, but as an adult I'm like wow he's he's a nice person and um we we just like it when everyone goes into when when two people are in a situation that is kind of like weird like that and they come out as equals and there isn't this weird like power struggle between the two so yeah, yeah. and he yeah he is cute <laughs> 
confirmed well okay i will say that uh nicholas and mia as enemies to lovers <laughs> is the most iconic enemies to lovers storyline ever period that's it <laughs> absolutely confirmed have the mixed arc. feelings about the trope but like this will always be like my number one <laughs> yeah I think that there's so many nuances to it that I think make it work and first is that they met when they didn't know who each other were the second thing is that like really Nicholas was never the villain it was his uncle yeah. like kind of coercing yeah. him and really kind of fucked up that his uncle manipulated him his whole life to believe that his father had a vision for him about something which like was just false and even with that in mind I think especially he wasn't much of a villain because even with this what he thought was his dead father's expectation he said like no Mia's really smart she's mm-hmm. really capable and I got some feelings for her too so I'm gonna let her be queen and he yeah. stepped back like that and then furthermore once he found out what his uncle's scheme was came forward and said like absolutely not Mm-hmm. Don't even think of me as a plan B. There is no plan B. She's plan A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> Thanks, ladies yes. and gentlemen. 100% agree to all of it. And yeah, it, it really is fucked up that the uncle is like using his dead father to, <laughs> to yeah. hold over his head as he's trying to gain political power. My question was, all of these, the threats to the crown, like both in the first movie and this one, they're just kind of like, I don't know, they like exist in a way that I'm like, how did you people not 100% know about this? Because I feel like <laughs> someone should have known about Nicholas, but yes. his existence comes as a surprise. Like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, that was just, yeah, I was just confused by that. Um, it's obviously, it's very contrived. Uh, the uncle's obsession with Machiavelli is ridiculous and so <laughs> on the nose. But, you know, yeah, we love Chris Pine. He, uh, he he's, yeah. <laughs> That's a good looking guy. I tell you what. <laughs> I agree on your point about the hair, though, because I feel like most issues, well, not most issues, but a lot of the issues <laughs> with men's roles in movies it can be boiled down to bad hair because Heath Ledger had bad hair in 10 things and Nicholas has bad hair in this movie and Noah had bad hair in the kissing <laughs> So This is a conspiracy. The hair and makeup artists are trying to dull the, spark- the, dull the sparkle of the yeah. leading men in yeah. teen rom-coms. Although but maybe yes. this was a commentary that like he could never be as good as her because he can't change his hair. <laughs> he could never take the crown. His hair sucks. <laughs> <laughs> sucks. Mia, on the other hand. Her updos in this movie were very excellent. I, yeah. I liked them a lot. It's but yeah. so true. Yeah, Nicholas actually, speaking of hair makeovers, that's another thing that I forgot to talk about with reference to like Mia reclaiming agency because I think that's the most mm. on-the-nose um, kind of parallel that in the first movie she has that makeover and the whole time she's kind of apprehensive about it and when she looks in her in the mirror at the end she doesn't recognize herself she looks a little distressed whereas Mm -hmm. in the makeover scene this movie with paolo he does like several looks and she's like no this isn't me. i don't like it and i thought that was so like just like a, a flip a switch flipping that yeah no she's not she's gonna kind of fit in what she has to do like riding side saddle and all that stuff but she's gonna do it her own way Mm -hmm. absolutely she's gonna do it looking like herself yeah she uh definitely i think has learned to articulate and kind of like stand up for herself in that way that i i think a lot of people kind of get more comfortable with as they get older because i know that that's something that i've like had to work on a lot so it, it's kind of relatable in that way that you're like actually this is not what i want and it's okay to say you yeah <laughs> that you don't want it so i agree and i again going back to your point about her just kind of like increased control I like the wedding scene so much because for most of it like she is in control like she's kind of running the whole show and that makes it I think a lot more meaningful you know and that she the fact that she can get up there in front of everybody like at her wedding be like actually this is total bullshit so you guys need to get it together I agree and I think yeah the whole wedding scene from start to finish 
was just 10 out of 10 because you have the supportive role of joe who like throughout the movie is being a supportive man's Mm -hmm. but i thought it was pretty great how he just kind of says to her hey nicholas had nothing to do with it there you go i can't really put my finger on like why i liked that but i think he just kind of armed her with the information that she needed and she could still make her choice and i think yeah i like the wedding of clarice thought that was a good vibe um and i mean yeah the whole situation clarice was much more in control than joe which like we love that um (laughs) 100 yeah Although I kind of agreed with what you said last episode about Joe's role not as being like not vibing with it as much in the second movie because I my thing was like I get that he loves Clarice very much but like why is it such a big deal that they get married (laughs) like he's very much like I need I need you to marry me I need an answer Um, and I was like yo I don't know you guys have a nice thing going like it's okay (laughs) yeah and he seems like incredulous when Clarice is like I have to train my grandmother to be queen yeah and like it is not out of it it, like it makes sense that she would say like give me a little while I have to train her get her coronated and then like I want to be there for her in her first few Mm -hmm. months or year or whatever and like I guess like after the coronation she will have more time and would just be in an advisory role but like in what world would it be a good time to get married? <laughs> exactly. And I feel Joe's like he world. would know that of all people. Like, yeah. Joe, you understand how busy this lady is. You gotta, you gotta yeah. just chill. She obviously loves you. So like, just hang on for a little bit. <laughs> just give me a minute. Get off my <laughs> dick, Joe. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. Yeah. The other things I liked about the wedding scene was the interaction between the prime minister and Mia that like, mm-hmm. It, again, it was just such a good representation of, like, she has never done this before. She doesn't know how to do it. And mm-hmm. he gives her tips without being, like, condescending or doing it for her. Yes. Um, at, like, yeah. that's such, like, the bare minimum. <laughs> I know. I know the bar from, is. Like, <laughs> but, like, it, it's so rarely done that, like, yeah. I, yeah. That's a really good point because I very much liked the prime minister across these two movies because precisely because he is that way that he's not like trying to vie for power in like a weird way like he's not threatened by Clarice or by Mia he's there to not take away from her moment but like you said to give her the information she needs to to actually like make the moment politically viable too um so yeah I think there are so many ways that this could have gone wrong and that, mm-hmm. yeah, he could have taken advantage of the fact that she was 21 years old, obviously doesn't have experience as queen um, and kind of uses it for his political gain. But I think it also goes above and beyond that he's like clearly a very empathetic person. You see it in the first movie when yeah, yeah. <laughs> he eats the ice cream and he's like, oh, we, I guess we should do that too. <laughs> um, and chokes some down with his wife. And I think, yeah, all of that, I think first of all, just really allows Mia to reach her potential and like show her potential and then I think it also gives a role model to like men Mm -hmm. (laughs) look this guy's prime minister he can be empathetic he can be whatever Mm -hmm. and I mean I think I never really expected to (laughs) say this about the princess diaries but it really does give a lot of good male role models that yeah like Andrew he's empathetic he is supportive of Mia and he does not come across at any point like a cuck Mm -hmm. um and he doesn't come across as like a simp or anything like he's just doing his thing and I think that that is also such a rare representation that like so often anyone that supports any woman is just like written off as (laughs) a worthless man yeah exactly yeah, I um especially too cuz I just I actually just now realized this, but I, you what you essentially have is like a love triangle going on, but that's not how it felt because they don't play it in the way that love triangles are very often played in kind of rom-coms. One of the men is not like weird and vindictive yeah. about his his relationship with this woman and he's not like possessive in that way and so you pointing that out just like made me realize I was like oh yeah this is a love triangle that doesn't have like 
that many of the unhealthy dynamics that so often appear like the two men don't fight each other I don't think they interact at all (laughs) yeah so and I don't know maybe that also has something to do with the fact that this is a g-rated movie I think or like pg or something like they can't get into like too many of the weird dynamics but I still like you said it, it is there are like good male uh role models in there that you know they're not trying to steal the shine and the two most important characters are women in this case so yeah I also didn't think about the love triangle dynamic and while you were talking through it I definitely think that the thing that marks most love triangles are like two men and a woman love triangles is like the possessiveness Mm -hmm. and that there's always this like competitive dynamic between the men that like who can win her heart who can Mm -hmm. be like her yeah who can possess her basically which I think the more I'm thinking about it the more I'm thinking this is just like genius storytelling (laughs) (laughs) because (laughs) there are so many nuances that make it work just perfectly and I think like for one there's affection but not amorous affection I don't know that like Mm. could have grown into amorous affection between Mia and Andrew um, Mm. that I think makes him not so jealous and like he's happy to be with her he doesn't hate her like (laughs) that's all good stuff but he doesn't develop that kind of jealousy um and equally like Mia doesn't with him and then I think yeah the fact that like Nicholas started out the campaign determined to make him make her fall in love with him and Mia Mm -hmm. started out determined to not like him um I think also definitely marked it and I think like I'm still like trying to put it into words, I guess, but I think it's a really rare occurrence as well that you can, I mean, especially in like a PG movie that you can demonstrate like passion in a relationship as well as like a healthy relationship. Mm. And by the end, I think it definitely got there. And I mean, it wasn't that healthy that like um, Nicholas was trying to like force her hand in into like compromising situation or like, visibly compromising situations not even compromising situations and manipulate her like that wasn't that good but like (laughs) I think as time went on it Mm. became yeah like they're clearly drawn to each other there's like a Mm -hmm. magnetism between them um and you see it like in the archery scene when he's teaching her how to shoot an arrow mark that down as a scene from which I will never ever recover (laughs) Me as an adult watching this scene just being like, oh my god, like, I know this is a PG movie, but like, the amount of sexual tension. The amount of sexual tension. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, and like, how do they combine that with like, him just supporting her? Yeah. I don't know, man. I think it just like, it really, it just works. It just works. uh, Shonda Rhimes helped write the screenplay mm-hmm. for this, so maybe we can thank Shonda for um for some of the genius, the screenplay genius. <laughs> I think we likely can. Um, <laughs> thank you, Shonda. Yes. Yeah, the relationship between Mia and Nicholas, manipulation, weird kind of like schemey plan from the uncle aside, like like you said, they are drawn to each other and you can see that the first moment that they meet where he like knows who she is. I don't know where he stands with his uncle's scheme at that point but like them meeting they obviously really like each other and it's the most iconic meet cute in any movie and yeah. people can fight me on that <laughs> square up it's just fun to watch and come on the moonlit horseback riding where they have a thumb war and then they dance by the lake like oh my god what a nice time what a nice time listen was it a little cringe when he was like oh i stayed home sick when i had tests in school yes but like (laughs) also there was awareness of that because mia was like okay we all did yeah 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 out of my face with (laughs) that like something like an actual secret (laughs) yeah get out of my face with that like (laughs) so cute so cute I love that the scandal of my childhood was them, like, her, her sleeping with her head on his chest and then them getting caught by the one paparazzi, like, tabloid <laughs> publication in paparazzi. all of Genovia. <laughs> that was the major scandal. <laughs> As you can't worthy, please. Keep your eggs sunny side up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, wait, not to Incredible. from the most important part of the movie, um, the most impactful scene, as we all know, as is universally um, recognized. But the other funny thing about this movie is that you see, like, what Genovia is, and the answer is mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody knows. <laughs> like, they it's were like- just like, let me throw in all this random shit. There's this woman, Elsie. Like, they make it out to seem yeah. like a country of immigrants, but, like, how could it be a country of immigrants? It's literally an amalgamation of, like, American <laughs> and just European like just yeah ooh, like <laughs> everyone European. has yeah like someone some people have french accents some people have weird horrible british accents yeah and then they're just and then the true born genovian nicholas is, is american <laughs> but he studied at cambridge and there is no indication that he's ever been to america yeah. this movie says fuck it like genovia is this uh this weird little weird little place it is like every hollywood stereotype it's incredible <laughs> yeah okay some of it can be explained away like okay for example switzerland they speak multiple different languages okay mm-hmm. maybe they speak we know that they speak french in genovia and we know that they speak english mm-hmm. though like listen I don't know. I'm really reeling. Like, does Clarice just speak English with Mia because she knows she speaks English? We think that we they speak like Italian because you have some Italian words thrown in there. Yeah. Okay, fine. And then like, okay, it seems like Nicholas would have like a kind of English accent because he went to Cambridge and he probably went to like all these random like posh schools, whatever. Mm-hmm. But okay, American accent pretty similar to like the international school accent so maybe he went to international school his whole life i can explain all that away what i can't explain away is why elsie kentworthy is genovian speaks with a scottish accent and wears like scottish dress on genovia day like how literally no (laughs) i i cannot offer any helpful explanation i really can't other than that Genovia is a set in Burbank and it has no full stop yeah yeah, it's chaotic it is like the main place like the main uh town square how many people live in Genovia like 200 three small (laughs) their parliament's biggest issue is the fact that they still have this clause in their constitution that (laughs) that has like a queen has to marry before she rules there are no political issues they seem to be on good terms with most people with everybody honestly great good for them but also what yeah and (laughs) for some reason they have like a capital the center of their capital looks like it's a town for of a few thousand and yet like the queen has at least two palaces and they have that consulate in san francisco that's like the size of like <laughs> any major country and exactly if it's so, all the perks okay. of a big country <laughs> i was gonna say like if it's so small why are there so many languages sp- spoken but like i guess luxembourg is like that so mm-hmm. maybe we're getting like luxembourg vibes from this yeah but you really are made to assume that genovia is a major political power enough yeah like you said to have a consulate in san francisco yeah. and yet somehow there are no real political issues ever brought up, yeah. um, which I get it. It's a kid's movie, but like, yeah, truly confusing. I love it. Yeah, I um, have done research before on where Genovia is like, and I really, I was trying to remember before we went on this adventure, whether they mention it um, at any point. And I think that they do in the first movie, don't they? They, I think they do. I think they say it's like a small country between like France and Spain, which is even more confusing. Yeah, because so, simply none of them speak Spanish. Nope. Italian, yes, but yeah, it's weird. I think uh, they were just going for a stereotype of monarchy, of a European monarchy. And, yeah, and this is what we got, and it's so funny to watch as an adult. <laughs> yeah, confirmed. <laughs> it's hysterical. They they have some kind of like. I don't know what their per capita per capita um what is it the GDP or whatever but I don't know how much Genovians are making but everyone seems quite happy. Everybody's they vibing have, in Genovia. Everyone's vibing and they Except only Except for the have, random like, like many orphans. 
so many can orphans. Can we talk about Genovia's orphan problem? I <laughs> was shocked at how many orphans are in Genovia. This is very, very strange. I, I agree. There were like more orphans than like people who attended the parade. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm too little, too piccola. That was a tiny Abigail Breslin, man. That she was so young. Yes. That girl has been on the Hollywood grind for a very long time. So she has big, big respect to Abigail Breslin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My other statement on this movie is like, if anybody knows that I come from royalty, please feel free to step forward. Yo. Like anytime is good. I'm ready. I've been prepping my whole life for this. Feel free. You're prepared. You're ready to step into it. I'm ready. I have a vaguely political science related degree. The college I went to is named after a monarch. Dude, you're, I think you're like pretty much all the way there. A hundred percent. She went to Princeton. I went to Kings. So just saying. (laughs) In the hierarchy of monarchy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you definitely have superiority there. I hate to pull this one, Mia, but incredible um several things just that i don't know how to incorporate but um (laughs) we have to talk about a queen is never late everyone else is simply early snaps for that thank you culinary people (laughs) definitely (laughs) um mia's closet that's it i loved it that shit was so cool do you know how much i wanted a remote control in my closet you know, that open drawers with jewelry. I looked at that jewelry and I was like, man, I want to put all of that jewelry on. This just really instilled unrealistic expectations. I yes! dreamed of having a closet like that. It's <laughs> never going to happen. It's not going to happen. Nope. I'm never going to have a closet like Well, maybe. No. What? No. I'm not going to have a closet <laughs> like that. Am I okay? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's a dream crushed now that I understand the realities of adult life. But, you know, it was nice to watch. I might just watch that scene isolated by itself. Yeah, <laughs> on repeat. The the uh, bachelorette party with mattress surfing. Absolutely incredible. So fun. And you know and, what? Also yes. a fun statement because she's doing something that she likes, but she's also bringing her princess life into it and like being a diplomat by mm-hmm. inviting all of the princesses from, the, from around the world. But she's not like having a stuffy dinner with them. She's doing something fun so smart yep and they're like they're girls of all ages too that's yeah. what i love to see they're just vibing having a good time and yeah. one of those girls talked about putting diamonds in her her um, braces <laughs> and that was something as a kid that i was very fascinated with yes too. i was like wow when i had braces is that a thing and uh no it was not no <laughs> but yeah mattress surfing excellent apparently I read this in an article. I do not know if this is like uh, actually true. I really want to believe it. But apparently Julie Andrews didn't request a stunt double. I don't know how, I, I don't know. But like, isn't that really cool to think about? Yeah. That that was actually Julie Andrews mattress surfing. I will decree there. that it is the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, it's her line too. What is, it's. um. Mia says, I thought you don't slide. And she said, yes. slide? No, but I've done a lot of flying in my day. Ugh. With her pajama set. Yeah. And the Adidas sneakers. Oh, baby. And then, and then Julie Andrews sings, which is a huge fucking deal. Yep. Everyone, okay, so that was another thing. I was looking at everybody's face during that scene. And Anne Hathaway, Annie, sorry, Annie Hathaway's face. Like, you can tell that it is not her acting. It's literally her witnessing Julie Andrews singing for the first time in a very long time. I'd cry. And everyone is just like, oh my god and then I think I like watched some behind the scenes thing with Raven Simone and she was also talking about how excited that she was just at the fact that she got to sing with Julie Andrews and like do a song with her like that is so fucking cool um side note I also wish that Raven was in more of the movie um I feel like there are a lot of Mia has a lot of friends yeah just kind of like disappear into thin air I'm like where'd y'all go man (laughs) yeah they disappear they reappear it's very I agree it's very weird Especially with Sorry. Raven, they had an opportunity for her to be a more involved character, but oh, yeah. they didn't do that. And maybe Raven was too busy. I don't know, but yeah, but she she was great. And then Lily's role was like super toned down. Like she was there the whole time, but like not in the Lily way that uh, <laughs> the first movie gives us. Yeah, which 
in a way I kind of missed because I really would have loved more of her kind of like punchiness uh, throughout the just these the whole scenario she's mellowed a lot yeah she got her attitude adjustment she did did. it came in the mail finally um but yeah I did love her role in this and that again she just supported Mia and was a good friend but I definitely think like I would have loved um because you kind of saw Lily smiling when Mia was giving her spiel about um making the Winter Palace an Mm. orphanage for Mm -hmm. a short time and I would have loved a moment of like Lily like high-fiving Mia and being like yes bitch like yeah incredible and I think she could have there could have been more of that because because like we talked about last time she was the one who really like got me to think about you know your power to do things as a a person uh, like as a member of the royal family in this case um and I did think it was cool that she was there for that but yeah like you said it was just she was just kind of like there yeah not as like involved as I would have wanted her to be I don't know could have also been a cool opportunity for there to be more of Lily and Mia like talking about kind of policy related things I know that's not very kids movie yeah but like at least having conversations not so much centered around like the whole Nicholas Andrew thing yeah that Mia's trying to navigate but more of like here's all the things that you can do you like know. even a comment like oh my gosh look at all this amazing stuff you're doing already like you're gonna be such mm. a great queen like yeah love you best friend love you besties yes. overall very much loved it I Okay, like my last thing was more of this like big kind of thinking that I was doing about the 21st century princess narrative in general. And like Mm -hmm. I was doing some reflecting on what these two movies kind of contributed to that and what Hollywood likes to tell young girls about princesses. And I think what's interesting and what I think the Princess Diaries movies do especially is that they're kind of moving into this revised princess narrative where you still have all the trappings of like becoming a princess and all the the fun royal things that come along with that but also being more progressive in the kind of like with the girl power narrative and in this case at least Mia advocates for herself and she does not need to marry in order to rule as a royal I think it's it's interesting it's something that like I don't hate but at the same time I have certain reservations about because I think Disney Disney especially really uses that revision obviously to make it more marketable and I think in a way it contributes to that sort of overall post-feminist narrative that we've talked about a couple different times this idea that you can move past the need for feminist work if you get to a certain position of supposed equality and I think for Disney that the the princess the revised princess is so crucial to that and they I I just haven't seen many like Disney movies that don't represent an empowered girl as a princess the culmination of empowerment for Disney Mm. is is a princess and I don't think that there's like anything horrifically wrong with it but you kind of have to I at least was like get a little bit cynical about that because in a way it does sort of undermine its relatability because like obviously who is going to be a princess you know like no one's getting a call that they're going to be a royal and I just, I, I just think it's interesting. And obviously it's very profitable because it's something that we keep coming back to and consuming every time they put one of these movies out. And, you know, again, it's like not to invalidate the princess narrative as something that might've resonated with people as when they were kids. It can be compelling and it's fun to watch, but I definitely think that they're really invested in this, this message of, of the princess's ultimate empowerment because in a way it is unobtainable and so it's it's just debatable on like who gets to have that empowerment in this movie the parade scene where she has all the kids walk with her she articulates Mia articulates being a princess is more of a mindset more than a position and I think like that's kind of how they get around it and like make it a little bit more relatable that if you just like believe that you're a princess you are one but I think a lot of this is me just being cynical about most things and like 
obviously it didn't ruin my enjoyment of this movie, but I think it is important to consider the pattern that Disney uses to like rake in billions of dollars is this yeah. unobtainable message of empowerment <laughs> that really like the only empowered woman is like a princess. And that was, that was kind of like my, my larger thought across these two movies. Yeah. yeah. I think that is such an interesting thought. And I have a couple of offshoot thoughts about that. And I think the first one is that like, I don't know whether to be cynical about Disney's narrative or to be cynical about the world in which they have to create movies. Um, But um, (laughs) I think there's this idea, like what it impresses upon me is the idea that like women can be capable, but only if they kind of have this responsibility thrust upon them kind of against Mm -hmm. their will, (laughs) they can, they can do what needs to be done. Um, Mm -hmm. which one yeah I think limits it to if you're a chosen woman you're able to do that and then like I mean you don't see stories that are fond over that like oh this woman became president this woman became prime minister and look at her she's beautiful she's looking for love whatever like because I think that those like visions are incompatible in Mm -hmm. people's minds that like you couldn't have this dynamic person who is relatable and or not a dynamic person a dynamic woman who's relatable and have that woman be like seeking power and seeking mm. yeah seeking influence whatever it might be um because yeah. i think that the essential element for yeah that shouldn't be essential but i think is essential to the marketability of it is that like it's thrust upon her and she does the best she can and she proves that she's smart that she's she can do it but she doesn't want it oh that is so fucking good because there are <laughs> representations for children of women like you said seeking power because that's not something that is not a narrative that that the larger you know patriarchal system likes to give women that is such a good point i think that's such a key insight to kind of like understanding that pattern yeah whereas i think you definitely see it with men like you see yes yeah whether it's princes or whatever, like, I mean, especially, obviously there's more of a narrative for princes in like older films because it wasn't until recently, yeah, the 21st century princess that like, it's a princess that would have power versus like a princess who just marries a prince. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess like, it is a step in the right direction that like, yeah, all Snow White and well, Aurora was a princess in her own right, but most of them marry a prince and that's how they get where they are get yeah. to being a princess and i think yes. i mean this is a step in the right direction that they're a princess of their own right but certainly not yeah it, it it's yeah. so different yeah and i think my other thought is that i think it has to be contextualized with the people's princess princess diana <laughs> thank you yes i read an article that talked about that that this movie this kind of formulation of the princess who has social power is very much indebted to what princess diana did yeah yeah, absolutely. And I think in addition to the feminist issues in this movie, I think there are also um, many classist issues that lurk oh, below the surface <laughs> that, I yeah. don't know, as I'm pretty cynical when it comes to monarchy. Um, oh, yeah. I think it's such a calculated process to make the mm-hmm. crown relatable. And obviously they kind of imbue some organic relatability in this by like pulling her from outside but I think even if you kind of think about what went on that Mia talks about like with the orphanage okay it's great that she's gonna like create temporary housing for these people until the money can be Mm -hmm. but like she has the money (laughs) yeah exactly why don't you just build one now yeah which and I think I mean that also was a thing because it's the winter palace that's used as perks for parliament not even her that she's Mm -hmm. giving up which is like okay (laughs) yeah absolutely i think obviously i still love the princess diaries but as i've gotten older and more cynical about monarchies it's like okay (laughs) exactly no that's totally what i was thinking i was just like yeah like the messages of girl power and you know you can do what you want like you you have agency like that's all well and good but it is undermined by the system in which it it happens which is a monarchy and Mia is really like she's gonna be fine you know her advocating for herself isn't gonna have 
consequences that it could have for like a regular woman in the world and um and you don't have I mean yeah again it's a kids movie it's a fantasy like you don't have those like kind of very heavy trade-offs but watching it now you can't help but think about that and that's what I mean by the princess as this ultimate form of empowerment because she is protected within the the system of monarchy and and so it creates this bubble that Disney can kind of you know work that post-feminist uh message of like you can do it you can get to a place where you don't need the feminism anymore but I I absolutely love your point about like there aren't any narratives of a woman trying to obtain political power through a, a presidency or a prime minister position like it always has to be a princess because it is a protected in a sense it is a protected position that there's kind of this like baseline you don't really question monarchy like it just exists and so it's fine for her to like do her empowered thing within it and <laughs> that is so not relatable it is definitely not how it works in the real world and um obviously not the most sustainable thing to like teach younger people about like how feminism functions and and obviously like in addition to the classism that is inherent in that it's so overwhelmingly white and so you just like you only have you have this one you have one picture of one person who can achieve this kind of limited specific empowerment and because it is a monarchy it's it is predicated on the exclusion of others in various ways for me that is a breakthrough to to see these patterns of empowerment the way in which women are portrayed as pursuing power in 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 media especially is like such a revelation what you said is like blowing my mind because i'm like (laughs) wait a second (laughs) that's so true (laughs) yeah honestly even i have blown my mind with what i have said um (laughs) good stuff because yeah the more i'm realizing it like all these stories are like equipping girls to deal with adversity but only once they've reached the position that they need which like is not how life works like thank you even like I'm in a job but before I got into this job well I don't really feel like I face like sexism like getting into this job but any call what I, like yeah mm-hmm. it just it's not again it's not the end of feminism it, mm-hmm. it, like and you can't just be empowered and that's that like yeah any of us like you and I smart gals we can be as smart as we want and probably still people will not respect us and not think that we're worthy of their time mm-hmm. um etc and yeah it's not just a matter of like proving them wrong in certain instances which is pretty much what all of this portrays it's mm-hmm. like no we're not going to get the same opportunities because of this yeah it's another example of in this case disney doesn't like to take a systemic approach to anything And so when you get the princess idol, the empowered princess, she's always an individual. She's always an isolated incident. And that suggests that empowerment isn't a social or communal issue. It it suggests that you yourself as an individual are responsible for your own empowerment. And if you can't achieve that, then something's wrong with you. And that is such a, that's just the worst message to give to young people because this applies to other, other systemic issues as well. And that's, I think the way that so much of, like how the capitalist neoliberal system in which we live right now hurts us because it tells us that you are responsible for these things that society, that these systems that you exist within, you're responsible for taking them on by yourself. And if you, again, if you can't find the empowerment, then there's something wrong with you. And that's like such a shitty, it's so frustrating, you know, like it it kind of gaslights people into the, just not being able to like they know that the system's there and the system's operating but um the every, every all the voices around them are being like no it's not really there i don't know what you're you know what you're on about but it's like the the issue could never be that disney produces one representation of female <laughs> empowerment that's crazy that's crazy talk you just you didn't buy enough tiaras so i don't know what to tell you it's like a personal <laughs> problem yeah i was I saw this tweet the other day that was um, screenshots of two different parts of a news article or two different, I think it's two different news articles. Anyway, the headline was like an unprecedented percentage of 
um, Gen Z is Marxist or socialist. And then it was like, <laughs> hmm, why would that be? And then it showed like the division of wealth between boomers, millennials, and Gen Z. And it was like, oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think, I don't know. It's hard not to get frustrated, like yeah. whether it's a classist or a feminist or racist struggle. How could you not wake up most days and just be angry that the whole system is stacked against people? Yeah, that's totally, that's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what it is. Be told repeatedly by people older than you and whatever that, Mm -hmm. no, it's actually not that way. Um, You just need to not buy as much avocado toast and you need to um, save your money and then you'll be able to buy a house and live happily ever after. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. I don't think you're doing enough. No, you're not. None of us are doing enough. And you know what? Also, there isn't a wage gap. It's just that like women decide to work in lesser paying jobs. <laughs> Lower paying. Millennials aren't buying diamonds. And this is really the real issue. <laughs> How millennials are killing gold. Um. <laughs> yeah. It all leads back, you know, to, to, to these things. I think that's the kind of like... Whenever I do my notes for these, I always feel like a broken record, but I'm like, well, no, I mean, like this, I think is just an example of why looking at these pieces of media, even though they are, you know, over 10 years old and they were things that came out when we were kids, like, I still think it's important to look at these and see how these patterns have persisted. It's, you know, just kind of all, <laughs> yeah, it always comes back to, to the same conversation, which is all telling. I gotta say, yeah. All I got to say is it's all connected and the call is coming from inside the house. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't have said it better myself. That is, people, that's the final word. (laughs) And on that bombshell, it's time to end, I think. Um, Yep. Anyway, um, thanks for listening with us. Thanks for listening to us. (laughs) We're not listening. (laughs) Anyway, thanks. Um, We'll be back next time. I'll be in a fun new location. So that'll be hype. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Have a good week. Bye. Bye.